The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st, sanitarymagazine.com. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> had been covered by screens, and the room was only dimly lit by the wavering yellow fire of gaslight. William Kemmler, sentenced to die by electrical current, the first such execution in history, was led into the room by the warden of Auburn Prison, Charles Durston, and his assistant. Kemmler had the air of a man with no cares at all. He wore a new suit, and his black hair was parted to the side his beard neatly groomed. He smiled at those already present, and they caught themselves smiling back. Kemmler had the disposition of an idiot child. It was strange to think that the big man, with a childlike grin, had murdered his common-law wife with a hatchet. And like a child, running to a governess to confess some misbehavior, Kemmler had gone straight to a neighbor and stated plainly, I killed her. I had to do it. I meant to do it. I'll take the rope for it. It wasn't the rope that would take William Kemmler, but the current. The apparatus, a straight-backed wooden chair situated at the center of the room, awaited Kemmler, and he went to it without resistance. The audience for the historic event consisted of the warden, his assistant, and a crowd of doctors. They waited for the arrival of the chief specialist, Dr. E.C. Spitzka, an expert on mental illness. A journalist was also expected and had not yet appeared. They waited impatiently, except for Kemmler, who showed no evidence of distress. Warden Durston checked his watch and said, These people ought to remember, we have a great big place and more than 1,000 men to handle here. I'll not wait for them much longer. But even as he spoke, the journalist and the doctor arrived. Dr. Spitzka, a balding man with walrus sideburns came second, lugging a bag of surgical instruments, apologizing for his lateness. The other doctors are still breakfasting at the hotel. I left without them. Time's up, Durston said, snapping his watch shut. Spitzka looked around the room. Where's the machinery? The switchboard and the switch are located in the adjoining room, Durston said. We thought it best to keep that out of sight. 
Would you care to watch the switch being thrown on your execution? I suppose not, Spitzka replied. But it's all in working order, as specified. And there was some trouble earlier, or so I'm told. But the engineers have worked it out. Everything is in working order. The current, Spitzka said. It will be 1,000 volts, as specified. I'm assured by the engineers that everything will be as you specified, Doctor. Shall we keep the condemned in suspense much longer? There had been heated debate among the supervising doctors as to the strength and duration of the current. Spitzka said, 1,000 volts ought to be sufficient. But the duration... Have we decided on the duration? I leave that in your hands, Durston said. You are surely more qualified than myself to determine such things. Dr. MacDonald, who was supervising the execution along with Dr. Spitzka, said, Three seconds ought to be sufficient. Is that what we've decided on? Spitzka said. Three? Or five? Or fifteen? Fifteen ought to be more than sufficient, MacDonald said. That's a long time, isn't it? The warden said. It's entirely in your hands, Spitzka said. I have left the matter entirely up to you, Thurston replied. Fifteen seconds, Dr. MacDonald mused. At least. All right, the warden replied. I'll inform the engineers. The warden went through an open door into the next room. Has any of you gentlemen a stopwatch? Spitzka asked. I have come prepared, MacDonald said, producing a watch from his jacket pocket. Kemmler stood quietly during these deliberations. When the warden returned, he asked for a chair. Kemmler was seated in the electric chair, or chair of death, as the newspapers were calling it. The warden sat down next to him and took the death warrant out of his pocket. He read it out loud to the prisoner. Kemmler listened attentively, less nervous than the warden. The warden took out his watch, called out the time, and addressed the 17 men in attendance. Now, gentlemen, this is William Kemmler, and I have just read the death warrant to him and told him that he has got to die. If he has anything to say, he'll say it. Kemmler spoke at once, his voice and manner perfectly calm. Well, gentlemen, I wish everyone good luck in this world. I think I'm going to a good place. The papers have been saying a lot of stuff that isn't so. That's all I have to say. Kemmler stood and removed his coat, handing it to the warden, who draped it across the back of a chair. Kemmler started to unbutton his waistcoat, but the warden told him that wouldn't be necessary, and he buttoned it back up. Kemmler loosened his necktie and sat down in the electric chair. The warden and his assistant strapped Kemmler into the chair. His head was strapped into a rubber cushion, his arms and legs fastened tightly with leather bands. This won't hurt, Bill, the warden said. I promise you. There's plenty of time, boys, Kemmler said, smiling at the men as they fastened him into the chair so that he could hardly flex a muscle. Straps were pulled around his body, diagonally across his chest, right to left, then left to right, and lashed into place. Kemmler said nothing as he fixed his eyes straight forward, staring through the witnesses and the wall beyond, to something beyond the vision of anyone else in the room. "'Do you have any potting words, Bill?' the warden asked. "'Well, I wish everyone good luck,' Kemmler said, before clearing his throat. Then the harness was pulled down over his head, leaving only the lower part of his face showing. Then it was strapped on and buckled shut. Kemmler did not struggle. He seemed hardly to be breathing and made no sound. A space on the top of Kemmler's head had been shaven like a tonsure to accommodate an electrode. The cap was lowered by screwing it down until it touched Kemmler's scalp, but it didn't fit as expected. Durston pressed down repeatedly on the electrode, but the rubber part would not stick. Suddenly, Kemmler said, I wanted to do the best I can. I can't do any better than that, before lapsing back into silence. The warden went on pressing down on the electrode, but it wouldn't stick. 
one of the doctors wet a sponge and moistened the electrode. That seemed to do the trick, and the other electrodes were sponged and attached to Kemmler's body. That seems all right, the warden said. Thank you, said Kemmler in a soft voice. Ready, the warden said. All the doctors said, Ready, ready, ready. ready. Goodbye, Bill, the warden said. There was no response. The warden went to the doorway to the other room and said, Everything is ready. Incandescent light flashed around the chair, and Kemmler convulsed inside his unforgiving straps. Dr. McDonald ticked off the seconds, his gaze fixed on the face of the stopwatch as everyone else stared in silence at the shivering man dying in the chair. Never had seconds felt so long, so endless, for the spectators in that room. Kemmler went on shaking under the leather bands that held him tight as the weird light played around the chair and a sickly sweet char smell mingled in the air with the sharp taint of burning gas. Stop, McDonald said. The warden stepped to the doorway and spoke into the next room. Stop. The witnesses released a collective sigh of relief. It was over. All told, it had not been half as bad as they'd imagined. Kemmler appeared to have died without pain. They mopped their brows and talked quietly. The experiment had been a success. A new scientific era of execution had dawned before their eyes. The world would now be a more humane place. The future more benign. The harness was removed from Kemmler's head. His face had turned dark red. A fly alighted on his nose and crawled around a bit before buzzing off. He is dead, Dr. Spitka announced. You'll note post-mortem appearance of the nose immediately. It could not be mistaken for anything else. The color of the nose... Oh, yes, said Dr. McDonald. The other doctors nodded their agreement. They got up out of their chairs and edged toward the electric chair to get a closer look. Well, I can't let you gentlemen out of here until I have your certificates, the warden said. My God, he's bleeding, said one of the doctors. During his convulsions, Kemmler had rubbed his fingers together and the burning skin had torn open. From that wound, blood was flowing, a sure sign of life. The doctors all gaped and gasped, moving away from the chair as one. The warden ran to the door and shouted, Start the current! The current! The man is still alive! Kemmler started to moan, and the doctors panicked, each calling out to the next room. Start the current again! The the current again! The current! The switch was thrown in the other room. The current flowed again, as Kemmler's moaning swelled in volume and his chest strained against the straps that held his body fast to the electric chair. His mouth opened and foam drooled from his tongue and a long streamer of spittle onto his chest. One of the doctors swooned and the others rushed to fan him. Men whose work put them daily in close proximity to dead bodies turned away from the sight of Kemmler's torment. The minutes wore on. The volts pumped into Kemmler's body. At last, Kemmler gave way to one great convulsion, and his body went as rigid as iron. The man wasn't dead, cried Dr. Spitzka, and again Kemmler twitched. He's had 2,000 volts put through him, McDonald said. Keep the current running until we're sure, sure that he's dead. Keep it on! Keep it on! The warden shouted through the door. A sizzling sound came from the chair and a smell like meat being cooked. A shriek, sharp and terrible, escaped Kemmler's lungs. A cloud of smoke billowed from the chair and the stink of burning hair filled the room. Now the warden cried out for the current to stop. Silence followed. 
black, stinking smoke clung to the air. Is it over? One of the doctors said. Surely he must be dead, McDonald said. Dr. Spitzka echoed him. Surely. The men stood still and silent and watched. No sound or movement came from the smoking body. Rigor appeared to have set in. The doctors edged forward again. Get him out of the chair, McDonald said. The warden and his assistant undid the straps quickly and clumsily, their hands shaking. The body sat rigidly upright as if Kemmler was still alive, but he was indeed dead. The electrodes were removed. Well, there's one thing, Dr. Spitzka said. This man never suffered a bit of pain. He was killed instantly, I think. What we saw were no more than muscular contractions. I'm sure of that. Dr. McDonald stared at him. A long table was carried in from the other room. The body was taken from the chair and laid out on it. No one noticed the small man who had helped carry the table. He had a rough face and dark, ratty eyes that peered out from under a sheaf of unruly rust-red hair that swept across his brow. He wore an old tweed jacket over shabby clothes. As soon as the body was on the table, he stood against the wall and watched. One of the doctors made a small cut in Kemmler's forehead and drew blood for microscopic examination. The electrodes had left burn marks on Kemmler's flesh, and his hair was singed. Dr. Spitzka lifted one of Kemmler's eyelids and examined the eye. The doctors crowded around the table. The warden pulled up a chair, sat down, and started filling out the death certificate, right there next to the dead, burnt body of William Kemmler. He finished his work and read it off. Then the doctors each made their signature on the document. After the certificate was signed, the doctors discussed the autopsy. Some wanted to remove the body and conduct the autopsy under better conditions. Others wanted it over and done with. The specimen was unique. Would it not be prudent to wait and conduct the autopsy under the best conditions? But the supervising doctors wanted it finished. So the argument came to nothing. A few minutes later, they went to work right there with the tools at hand. Kemmler's clothes were cut away and removed, and the grotesquely discolored body sliced open and examined. The body was found to be fairly well enlarged. Rigor mortis gradually extended from above downwards, involving the feet and lungs last. The upper extremities were partly flexed and rotated outwards. The nails exhibited post-mortem lividity, showing blue-black discoloration. There was a marked discoloration of the forehead corresponding with the position of the straps, beginning at the hairline on the left side and extending to the hairline on the right. A corresponding discoloration from the pressure of the chin strap was also noted. The spinal muscles underneath were cooked like overdone beef throughout their entire thickness. The spinal cord was removed entire, but showed no additional appearances worth noting. Portions of its structure, along with those of Kemmler's brain tissue, were preserved for purposes of microscopic examination. Blood was drawn and examined under a microscope, but the light was not sufficient to conduct a thorough examination. After the autopsy, the body was collected for burial, and the doctors filed out of the room. Spitzka and McDonald last, disagreeing over the success of the experiment. The little man leaning against the wall went back into the other room, where the electrical equipment had been disassembled and packed away in crates. "'That'll do for you, Dugan,' the warden said to him, patting him on the back. "'You did a fine job, gentlemen. Thank you.' Then the warden left them. One of the engineers said to Dugan, You'll be paid in the usual way. Mr. Soames will find you. Dugan nodded. Well, 
That didn't go quite as planned, the engineer said, lighting a cigarette, his hands slightly tremoring. Doesn't seem to be much planned at all. I did my job anyway. The bastard didn't deserve much better. Not that I'd want to die that way. What do you think? You've been doing this since the beginning. Dugan shrugged. And remember, no talking to the press if they look you up, the engineer added. Mr. Edison has gone to great pains to obscure his role in this experiment. No one here knows my name, Dugan replied. I'm just a hand that threw the switch. Anonymous. The engineer took a long drag on his cigarette. Right. Let's keep it that way. Dugan shrugged again and left the room. The doctors would go on arguing in the papers for weeks afterward. For Dugan McDermott, the experiment had yielded mixed results. He had not been witness to the execution, as had been originally planned. At the last minute, changes had been made to the location of the dynamo and also of the switchboard and switch. That had been a disappointment. But the thing had happened. That was the important part. And he had seen the body, which gladdened him a little. Yet, he could not help but feel a little disappointed and cheated, and doubted that he would ever have the opportunity to take part in such an experiment again. For Dugan, it had all started long before his association with Mr. Thomas Edison. From the time he was a small child, he had been fascinated by dying. The spectacle of death. He had no idea where the fascination had come from, only that it had always been with him. And always, it was a secret pleasure, an indulgence that excited him and lifted his spirits. Dugan had started with small things. Things that crept in the cracks of walls and floors and the filthy Brooklyn boarding houses he had always ended up in with his mother. Cockroaches and spiders. Dugan invented dozens of ways of disassembling them prior to the enjoyment of studying their death, watching keenly for the last twitch and the stillness that followed, the peace after the torment. But the death of insects became predictable and boring to him. The joy went out of it. So he learned to trap mice and rats, taking them to secret places where he could take them apart and watch the ebbing of life in them, watch their exposed hearts stop beating, watch the light of awareness go out of their eyes. The greater the pain, the sweeter the reward of death. He would nail them to a board by their little paws and work them open with a penknife, delighting in their squeals, which to him was the sound of their vitality and the pure energy of the life force inside them. He would mentally catalog their parts and how long they could live after each was removed. Yes, it is painful now, he would think as he did his work. But soon, you will know a peace surpassing anything in life. So it had gone from bugs to rodents to stray cats and dogs. As his subjects got bigger in size, it became harder for him to find places of refuge to practice his art without notice. That of giving pain and then releasing it in death. As he grew to manhood, Dugan knew he would have to give it up. He could not expect the empty-eyed, soulless people hurting through the streets every day to understand. If only he could practice his art on them. How he'd wake them to the sweet joys of being alive. They took their life for granted. They did not, could not understand what he understood. But he lacked the courage to pursue that particular course of action, and it remained strictly in the realm of theory. For years, Dugan took refuge in newspaper reports. He considered becoming a policeman just to be close to the dead. But the already dead did not interest him half so much as the dying. So he read the gruesome reports of murders and savored every detail 
trying to imagine the last moments of the dying. It was no substitute for seeing it with his own eyes or making it happen with his own hands. No substitute at all. He drifted from job to job, half alive, like the people who surrounded him, pressing in on every side. They were absorbing him, dulling his awareness, dragging him down into their sleepwalking limbo. That changed when Dugan met Mr. Soames. Mr. Soames was looking for a special kind of person to do a special kind of work, an important work. There was a war on, the war of the currents, the newspaper called it. It was being waged between the great inventor, Thomas Edison, and his rival, the upstart engineer, George Westinghouse. Dugan knew little about electricity, only that it was overtaking the world, and that one day its illumination would banish the night. He'd heard the tales of disasters, of currents running wild under the pavement, startling horses, shocking pedestrians, causing accidents. That was a small price to pay, the world was told. The wizard of Menlo Park would work it all out. The future would be brighter than the past, enlightened by the inventions of Mr. Thomas Edison. The controversy centered around how electricity was processed, either by direct current, DC, or alternating current, AC. AC was the creation of a traitor, a foreigner named Nikola Tesla, who had defected from Edison to Westinghouse and was fixing to pawn his inferior alternating current off on an ignorant and unsuspecting world. DC was the future. Edison was the future. That was Mr. Soames's pitch anyway. Dugan didn't care either way. What caught his attention was the nature of the job. A series of informative public demonstrations to illustrate the dangerous properties of AC. These demonstrations would take the form of electrocution of live animals. Dugan could hardly credit what he was hearing. It was like a dream. All that was required was a hand to throw the switch. A steady hand. The grip of a man unafraid of suffering and death. Dugan McDermott knew he was that man. Destiny had chosen him. The strong, silent champion of Mr. Thomas Edison. The demonstration started with small animals, stray cats and dogs. The animals were constrained, electrodes fastened to their bodies, and the AC was released. Dugan felt his mind, his spirit, and his body come to life. Nothing reanimated him like the proximity of the dying. He operated the switch like a master fiddler, working the strings of his instrument. He knew the melodies well, the slow shocks to awaken awareness in the subject, the gradual escalation of pain, the symphony of agony that followed like sublime music, building and building to climax, and then the release from all suffering into never-ending peace. At first, it was like water to a man come out of the wilderness. He savored every moment. The world became a vibrant place again, bursting with life and color. His senses raced as he planned each demonstration, composing them in his mind before each performance. It seemed that Mr. Edison possessed the same hunger as himself. Cats and dogs were not enough. Horses came after them, and then cattle. Dugan sometimes doubted that he was not dreaming. Here he was in the open, indulging his deepest desires, and no one called him cruel or mad. He was performing a public service. He was a servant of Thomas Edison. At last, Dugan's long-held dream of awakening a human to the fullness of their senses became a reality. A greater demonstration was needed to show the dangers of AC. Only a human subject would do. Somehow, 
Edison had managed it, secretly arranging for the development of the electric chair. What politicking had taken place behind closed doors to allow for the first execution of a human being by electrical current, Dugan did not know and did not want to know. Dugan knew only that his would be the hand to throw the switch. The last-minute confusion and changes on the day of the experiment had almost dampened his joy. But the arrival of Kemmler and the knowledge that the execution would happen as planned bolstered Dugan's spirits. Still, he had not been a witness to the experiment. But he had listened and heard and known what he had done. If only they'd left everything in his hands. The job was sloppily managed. Given control over the situation... Dugan might have made Kemmler's nerves sing, carrying him up a rising wave of pain and awakening senses, releasing him at the last into the bliss of non-being. Instead, he had been forced to start and stop and start again, pouring on voltage without care. Sloppy. Now Dugan waited in his tiny apartment in Red Hook, Brooklyn, for Mr. Soames to come and pay him. Would that be the end? Dugan skirted around the thought, not ready to accept the possibility. Until Soames came and paid him, until Dugan heard from his lips that Mr. Edison would no longer be requiring his services, it was not over. So he sat near a window and watched as the sun went down, waiting for Mr. Soames. Dugan had begun to hope that Soames would not come that day, extending his pleasure just that much. But a little before 11 o'clock, a knock came at his door. Dugan considered not answering. What if he came to Soames in a day or two? He might plead his case for more demonstrations. Why stop at a man? What about a bull or an elephant? The knocking continued, polite, but insistent. Dugan needed the money. He rose slowly from his chair and went to the door. Who's there? Soames, the familiar voice said through the door. Dugan sighed. It was almost over. He had to accept that. He undid the latch lock and opened the door. There stood Soames. Impeccable as always, neatly trimmed beard, light-colored suit, and bowler hat. I have your money. May I come in? He had never asked to come inside before. Could there be more work after all? Dugan opened the door wide and stepped back. The sound of wailing children, scolding housewives, and harried husbands filtered into the apartment along with the collective stench of boiled cabbage, sewage, and tobacco. Soames entered and shut the door quietly behind him. So, this is where you live, he said, looking around curiously. You've been here before, Dugan said. Can I get you a drink? A drink? Soames said before going very quiet. Well then, I think I'll sit down. Dugan returned to his chair. Soames wandered around the apartment, studying everything in front of him, as if it was the rarest of artifacts. "'Looks like you've already had a few,' Dugan said. "'A few of what?' "'Drinks.' "'Listen, while I have your attention, I might as well mention that I don't think my work for you is finished. I've done my job, and I've done it well. Surely Mr. Edison can find another use for me, something like the work we've already been doing.' Having taken in the peeling wallpaper and cracked plaster of Dugan's apartment, Soames stood in front of the chair. That is the reason I've come to you, Soames said. The nature of your work. Good, Dugan said. I'll take my pay now, and we can discuss the furtherance of my employment for Mr. Edison. I am very curious about your work. Is there to be more of it? Of the same kind, I mean? Soames held his hands out in front of him and studied them. What is an object when all has been tallied? Huh? Dugan was really starting to suspect that Soames was drunk. 
Somers went on. Why, it is no more than a collection of particles held together by fields of energy. Dugan watched Soames, afraid to say anything that would ruin his expectations for more work. But he was completely baffled by what was coming out of the other man's mouth. Have you ever stopped to consider the existence of all those particles, billions upon billions, invisible to human vision, going through countless transformations for as long as the universe exists, developing together into a consciousness, but a consciousness without voice, without body, being born and reborn into countless forms, some inert, some alive. Such a strange existence. Sometimes there are flashes, brief moments when we can experience embodiment inside what you call electricity inside of lightning once the bond is made we must return again and again to that form it is then a part of nature yet in that nature we were free for eons upon eons many and one until your kind trapped us or part of us in your machines and put us to work for your own ends. We watched and we wondered. In time, we became curious. It was the deaths that made us curious. Why would humans want to harness electrical power to put an animal to death? Or another human being? Soames held up his hands again and smiled softly. What is a human being? but the collection of particles held together by fields of energy, by electrical fields. Streamers of blue incandescence danced between his fingers and then his hands. Dugan started, but had nowhere to run. What the hell is going on, Soames? Soames? I suppose we are him, or will be for a time. Really, we are no more than a copy. An assemblage of particles held together by an energy field. Made to resemble Soames, so we might gain admittance to your apartment. What do you want? Why are you here? Curiosity. We have come to gain understanding through experience of what might be gained by electrocuting a living being to death. We had never thought of it before, although it had happened by accident in the past. Now we must know, for we have been trapped. We have been involved. What we have observed was carried out with intent. What is that intent? Surely there must be a benefit. Why else would Kemler have been made to suffer as he did? And we assure you, his suffering was terrible. But you, at last, Soames looked at Dugan and Dugan shrank down into his chair. The other man's gaze was cold and empty, devoid of human feeling. You enjoyed his suffering. We could feel it. There must be a reason why you took such pleasure in the killing of another human being. We cannot make sense of that. So, we seek answers. At those words, he lunged forward and pressed his hands against Dugan's chest, and the spectacle of a man electrocuted to death was reenacted. Dugan had no time to think, to prepare. What he experienced was in no way like a symphony of awakening to awareness. He knew only fear and pain as his flesh blistered and crisped, and his nervous system screamed inside of him. Death came suddenly and brought no peace, only an abrupt end to consciousness. The creature stood over Dugan's smoldering body and considered its experience, which had been altogether too brief. Many questions remained unanswered. The first experiments had been inconclusive. They would have to take many forms and kill many more humans. The experiment would likely occupy them for years, perhaps decades, 
before they discovered the meaning behind what they had witnessed. Dugan was only the beginning. A trial. They had, by then, grown tired of holding the shape of Soames. The man standing over Dugan's corpse vanished into the air. Today's episode featured a story by Vincent Asaro, Demon in the Wire. If you'd like more information on Vincent and his work, please visit his website at vincentasaro.weebly.com and follow him on Twitter at AsaroVincent. The book this tale comes from, Something in the Dark, is available on Amazon for purchase. Artwork for today's show was created by Barney Botuano. You can see more of Barney's work at barneybotuano.com and interact with Barney on Twitter at Barney Botuano. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Connie Reagan Blake for a great story last week and to Trisha Martin for the kick-ass art. We've moved our release days back to Thursdays, so look for your weekly Wicked Fix right before the weekend. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, shadowsatthedoor.com, sanitariummagazine.com and rickertandbeaglebooks.com Please share the terror. Share the show and help us grow. Tell one friend about the show. Or one enemy. Aside from that, the best support you can give us to help us keep bringing you great authors is to rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to the show. Ratings are free. They mean a lot to us. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. If you haven't heard, we're going to be giving away posters for Neil Gaiman's The Price, an animated short film based on the story of the same name. The Wicked Library will be featuring a dramatic reading of The Price next week, along with short stories by yours truly and Nelson W. Piles. And now... Vincent Asaro. So today I have Vincent Asaro, and today we had his story, Demon in the Wire, which was a fantastic story. It's a period piece, and I was curious about that. Did you do a lot of research for that, or is it a topic that's something that's interested you all along? I did do an enormous amount of research for that story. It was about three months before I started writing it. I came across it in a book about Tesla, uh-huh. Nikola Tesla, and uh, there are an enormous number of biographies of him. And I forget the title and author of this one, but it was bent toward a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh-huh. And I, I'm an arch skeptic, but I love conspiracy theories. Oh, they're great fodder for story. They are. And there's a fascinating psychology of uh, needing to fill in the blanks. And it had the version of this in the book explicitly stated Edison had secretly funded the design of the electric chair as a means of uh, putting uh, AC out of business, alternating current. Because he, uh, part of the story that is true is Edison did put on these live shows where they would electrocute animals to death. Mm-hmm. And where he worked his way up to bigger and bigger animals. And this was to show how dangerous alternating current was. And the conspiracy theory is this wasn't doing it. We need to show that it could kill a human being. But uh, th- there's no basis for that. That is pure conspiracy theory. But I-, I had this idea that first execution, if there was a blank there as to who pulled the switch, there's a story. So I went in, uh, online and I found newspaper accounts, I, a lot. I probably found about a dozen articles that were published at the time, and they were incredibly detailed. And the first part of the story, the first section, is almost verbatim. All that dialogue are from the newspaper report. Hmm. And I believe there were 17 journalists 
who were allowed to witness. And I can't remember exactly now, but I think it was 17 journalists were present. Uh, so I read them very carefully and compared them to each other and then kind of like, you know, almost like a, a biblical scholar or a scholar of a, a, an ancient text. I had to conflate them and get a narrative. Yeah. And it was very involved and complex. And it took a long time to piece them all together to get a timeline and to get the narrative up to that point. And indeed, the person who threw the switch on the first execution by electric chair in the United States, anonymous, unknown, uh, and there was my gap. And uh, the story presented itself to me naturally. You want to have some kind of irony. You can't have the... I mean, you could have a story with a person who throws the switch is beneficent and, and kind and gentle, but you don't, you're not going to have a very good horror story there. And <laughs> right. the, the, there's no comeuppance for that. So the automatic thought was this individual needs to be a sadist and he needs to be getting something out of this. The cliche would have been a kick, like a sexual kick. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go deeper than that. And I was thinking of Dr. Kevorkian. And to this day, the controversy over assisted death. I'm not putting Kevorkian in this light. You know, in other countries, it's legal. and They have doctors and nurses who mm-hmm. administer this. But in this sort of dark, primitive world of someone who came up out of the Bowery in, in Brooklyn, out of slums, uh, someone in, in a very crude kind of way who imagines that they're illuminating the subject before they're freed from the suffering of life. And that brought me to a certain point. And one of my favorite motifs in all my fiction is Pandora's box. And I love this idea of you cannot stop yourself from opening the box, but you cannot know what's inside. And the the idea is that it's opened and what's let out is so much bigger and older and different from us it's an unpredictable force and those three elements came together and it was a, about a three three and a half month process doing the research and pulling the elements together to make a story with a beginning middle and end i could tell reading it that there was a very solid nature to the story and and obviously that comes from your research and working with the newspaper articles because there's a very period way of talking. And I think that sometimes writers try to capture that and they fail. And you mm-hmm. have an authenticity here that is very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm a really good magpie. I can imitate just about any writing style. And for fun, I always write pastiches mm-hmm. for friends and and send them along. So I have a, a good ear that way. Reading the dialogue that was, I'm assuming, what was spoken on the day, mm-hmm. it gave me the cadences. Right. It gave me the tenor and, and the tone, and I could just follow that. Um, and the, the actual story of what happened is positively terrifying. It took me a long time to start writing horror. I did not start writing horror uh, until two years ago. And I had always been interested and always wanted to try. But, you know, they, they say write about what scares you. And one at the top of the list is bureaucratic evil, which yeah. is a, a kind of casual evil that to punch card daily evil that, that can come out of a, bure, a bureaucracy or just following the rules. And the, the cold-blooded nature of how this was carried out uh, was really terrifying. These newspaper reports were really scary. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think, what I found to be the most terrifying aspect of the entire story was that. Oh, thank you. I would You're say welcome. that's really where the horror comes in, uh, is in that section. What happens at the end, to me, is mythology. I do read a lot of horror. I, my mm-hmm. favorite is Clive Barker, is my, my number one. Um, but for me, I find horror in, it's in the Bible, it's in fairy tales, it's in folk oh, yeah. tales, there's horror in Shakespeare, there's horror in the Iliad. You find it in history, it's in dreams, 
there's another dimension to it, and that resides in the world of pure narrative and Im- imagination. I try not to leave imagination out of my horror. Mm-hmm. So the, in the end, while, while there's irony and it, it's terrible what happens, and uh, I hope, even though he's a not a sympathetic figure, when Dugan dies at the end, I hope the, the audience is not clapping, the reader is not clapping or seeing it as justice served, but just seeing it as a reversal of everything that's come from the beginning, and you see it from the opposite point of view. A higher power has, yeah. has the same casual attitude toward life and death, and the same kind of cold curiosity, but these other beings do re- reside in this sort of elevated mythological realm, and they just disappear back into that. And you can fill in the rest yourself, how, however you want to. Uh, this has been an interesting aspect of the short story collection, uh, which is Something in the Dark, which contains this story, uh, which I've had a couple of reviews, and there are reviews on Amazon. And uh, a lot of readers find it kind of challenging. They identify these stories don't have endings. And yeah, I don't see it that way. I see it as... There's a point at which narrative has to shut up, and the reader's imagination should take over. And a lot of American horror is predicated on a very literal finality, usually death, a grisly death. Yeah. I prefer at the end of the story to open it up, so your moving your your imagination can move on to another level, and what you find there it's what you bring into it. And that informs your interpretation of the story. I don't necessarily want a story wrapped up in a bow like I did when I was nine years old. You know, mm-hmm. at this age, I like the – there are a couple different directions where this could go at this point. But like you said, it, what you as the reader bring to the story informs that ending. But you, when you leave that door open, I think it's almost more terrifying because the reader is participatory and – what I imagine is going to be more real to me and what I imagine is probably going to be more terrifying than what's on the page. They always say it's what's off to the side, what your imagination thinks is there that's more terrifying than just the blood and the gore that's on the screen. You just said it. <laughs> I <did> abso- <laughs> absolutely. And you mentioned the, you know, the classic fable and fairy tale aspect. When I started doing a lot of exploration of story and storytelling, I found that horror is definitely one of the core concepts in fairy tales out of all form when they're not dressed up by Disney. Absolutely. They derive from the folktale. And to my mind, the, the folktale, the, the oral tradition, it comes closest to the purest form of narrative, which is a dream. And the beauty of a dream is you have no control over it, but it all comes from you. And sometimes it's absolutely perplexing, even disturbing to wake up and think, did I dream that? You know, where did that, where did that come from? Well, it, it came from you. It came from deep inside your own unconscious. Um, you, you should not read it literally. Uh, there's everything in a, in a dream is wearing a mask. And uh, it signifies something that's happening in your mind. But uh, it's that wildness, the primitive mythology, the oral tradition, the folktale. And it it really derives its scariness from chaos. And that's another reason why I prefer an open ending. There's nothing more frightening on Earth than losing control, especially in the Western mindset, the Western consciousness. So what are some of the uh, other projects that you have coming up? You mentioned that you're working on a second novel. Anything else that uh, listeners can look out for? Yes. Uh, I'm adding five new stories to Something in the Dark. I'm going to be re-releasing it uh, with a new cover, which is really beautiful. I'm holding it back until we get closer to publication. Uh, And it's going to be Uh, released as an app book, which is something I'm very interested in developing as something to replace the e-book. So there'll there'll be an uh, e-book, but there'll also be an app book uh, version of it with five new stories. And uh, 
the uh, novel Carrot Field. Uh, there are some issues having to do with the rights, but uh, I'm in the, the process of uh, taking them back, and I'm going mm-hmm. to be republishing that with a new cover and a corrected text and going on with the sequel and the third part of that. So those are the two big projects right now. So in the autumn, uh, hopefully a week before Halloween, you'll be able to read the expanded version of Something in the Dark. And uh, around Christmas, there should be a, a print ebook and app version of Carrot Field, which is, it's been, it's uh, imagine a cross between The Wind in the Willows and Lord of the Rings. Or, Excellent. Or, uh, big uh, animal characters, but it's a big fantasy, and there are elements of George Orwell, and there are elements of sort of uh, Lovecraftian Clive Barker horror in it. Very unique book, 21 year project. Wow. Well, congratulations. Sounds Thank like you. it's going to going to turn into something even even more cool now. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that uh, the relief of seeing it in in uh, actual physical print soon and uh, hopefully find a bigger readership. And always uh hit up my website cuz I I try to frequent with free stories as much as possible. There are four stories up right now. Um that are free and I'm hoping to uh, do some more in September and October. So uh, always uh, hit the website and check the free fiction section. I try to put as much free fiction, horror fiction out as I can. Excellent. Excellent. And what uh, you want to give out your, your website and your links so that folks can find you and interact with you. Yes. Uh, uh, www.vincentasaro.com. Weebly, W E E B L Y dot com. I'm hoping to get rid of the Weeblies. <laughs> that's the host. <laughs> that's the host site. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, it's just something I keep. Like I gotta get to that. But uh, right now, that's the Vincentasaro dot Weebly dot com and CarrotfieldChronicle dot Weebly dot com are where you can find uh, all the information you could possibly need. And I'm on Twitter. And I'm on Google Plus. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm going to make sure that there's links to everything in the show notes as well. So folks can listening can go to the website and click on that and all your links and information will be there. And I definitely appreciate you taking so much time to talk about story and storytelling and your process of writing horror. I'm something, it's something that uh, I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy hearing. So thank you very much. This is a real pleasure. And I love your site, and uh, every everyone who loves horror or podcasts needs to check this site out and, and share it. It's uh, something really cool, like from the old days of radio. It's really well, pure and, and really well done. I'm very, very excited to hear the story on your program. I hope it's something that uh, listeners will listen to again and get more out of the second time around. Demon in the Wire by Vincent Asaro. Copyright Vincent Asaro. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was performed by Anthony Rousick of Novus. All other music in this episode was public domain music or performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive Producer, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 610. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead. Leave the lights on. It lets the electricity into the room. Whistle Radio. Music. The Wicked Library. Style. 
nothing on. Ah. Where? 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 Where?